today we are concluding our series, The Road to the Resurrection. And so uh, we're going to be looking today in John chapter 20, in verse number 24. So if you're interested, you'd like to follow along with us. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, But obviously, The Road to the Resurrection, the resurrection happened two weeks ago. And so we're just sort of moving through and sort of the after effects of the resurrection. Now before we get started, I'm going to share a story with you that I had read. It was back in 1997. There were two men who had this huge dream, and their dream was to be able to circumnavigate the globe in a hot air balloon. Now, to be able to do that, they were going to have to have a pressurized balloon. They had to spend a lot of money getting the equipment to be able to pull it off. And what they were hoping to do is they were hoping to go high enough to where they would catch the jet stream. And then once they got into the jet stream, the balloon would be moving at 200 miles an hour. I, mean, I don't even know what that would be like, but they were all excited about it. So they, the balloon cost $1.5 million to make. So they got the balloon, everything was ready, they got up into the jet stream, everything's going according to plan, when all of a sudden in the balloon there was a leak in one of their kerosene tanks. I don't know what that tank was doing in there, but it was leaking and they couldn't get it to stop. And then another leak sprung in the tank, and so they began to radio down to their home base, and they were like, we don't know how to stop this thing, what can we do, please advise immediately. Well, their advice they gave them was, you need to get down as soon as you can. And they said, the nearest landing point for you is going to be in Algeria. Now, I don't know exactly where they were, but they were getting close, but they weren't quite able to make it to Algeria, and they ended up having to ditch the balloon in the Mediterranean Sea. Now, the good news is they were able to radio ahead, and a boat was able to go out there whenever the balloon went down, and they were able to rescue the two men. But, but here's what's incredible to, incredible to me about the story. A $1.5 million balloon, the reason why it went down was because a clamp did not properly work. The clamp cost $1.16. Isn't that great? That's, that's the kind of stuff that happens to me. And so $1.16 derailed a $1.5 million balloon. Big dreams, but they came crashing down over $1.16. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, concerning, concerning a lot of things in life, but since we're in church today, concerning our faith, there are a lot of us, when it comes to our faith, we have big dreams, we have big visions, we see the forgiveness of God, we believe that God's going to transform our lives, that God's going to make a difference in our lives, but then we have a $1.16 clamp that malfunctions and causes our big dreams that we have in our faith to come crashing down. You know, things like, like fear can cause our faith to crash. Things like doubt can cause us not to be able to progress in our walk with God. And, and you know, you look in the world today and you see the strife and the, the corruption and the meanness and the death and the disease. And you see all those different things in our world today. And it can really shake and rattle your faith to where you get to a point where you begin, even, you begin to even doubt that our faith is real. That our faith makes a difference. And, and that's why I, I like this passage of scripture we're going to be looking at today so much because it's about a disciple of Jesus who was rattled in his faith. He began to have doubts and those doubts began to creep into his life in such a way that, that it was about to bring down his walk with God. 
But as we look at his life today in John chapter 20 and verse number 24, we're going to see that as this man whose name was Thomas, that as he was facing doubts in his life, he was able to discover how he could have freedom over his doubts. And that's what I want to share with you today and that I hope that you'll be able to apply and move in your life and that it will do the same thing for me is how we can experience and find freedom in our lives over doubt. Now to just sort of kind of look at the background material here is that just a, you know, just a little bit before Jesus had been crucified on the cross. And then a few days later, there was a group of ladies who came in and said, hey, Jesus is not in the tomb, he's gotten up, he is living. And so, you know, as you can imagine, I mean, that's got, that's got to be exciting news. So everybody's excited, and then Jesus appears before his disciples, and, and when they, they heard the story of the resurrection, they weren't so much sold at the beginning, but after they saw Jesus, they're sold. They're like, oh yeah, man, he is alive. Now, for some reason, Thomas, the disciple, Thomas, was not invited to this party. He did not see the resurrected Jesus. And so they'd been telling him about it, but when Thomas heard about it, it's interesting to see what his response was. His response is real simple. Yeah, I don't believe that. I do not believe that Jesus is still alive. It was just simply a little too much information for him to take in and to, to gather his arms around it and say, yeah, that is something that I believe is true. Now, there was nothing wrong with Thomas having questions. It was okay for him to have questions. Where he was about to get into trouble is with his doubts that he had and the doubts overwhelming and consuming him in such a way that it was going to blow away and destroy his faith. But the good news is today we're going to see a few, a few steps that move Thomas from being a man filled with doubt to a man who was filled with faith. And I, I hope that's where you and I'll be today when we leave here. So, so what are some steps that can lead us from, to freedom over doubt? And here's the very first thing I see. To move from freedom to, over, over, to have freedom over doubt, it begins with this. It begins with take your time before you make decisions. Take your time before you make decisions. Now, look with me in verse 24. I hope to explain this a little bit better there. But it says, but one of the twelve, Thomas, called twin... I, I'm assuming that meant he had a twin brother. It says he was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples kept telling him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, If I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, look what he says, I will never believe. After eight days, his disciples were indoors again and Thomas was with them. And even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. He said, peace to you. Now when I look at the initial reaction of Thomas to this whole thing about you know, Jesus was raised from the dead, Thomas didn't see him, I, I don't have any problem at all with Thomas questioning the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, to me, that is, that is completely logical. I mean, think about it. How many people do you know that have been raised from the dead. I don't know about you all, but I'm at zero still. And so it just makes sense to me that he's, he's a little bit skeptical about, about this whole thing. And that, that's okay with me. It's a, logical, it's a logical question that he has. You see, Thomas knew what the cross was like. Y'all, you know, the cross, the crucifixion, is, it was one of the most inhumane 
ways that you could execute somebody. The Romans, they were experts in how to put people to death. And Thomas, along with everybody else in Israel, and really the Roman world, they knew that whenever you were placed on a cross, when you were nailed to that tree, you were not going to get off that tree alive. And so I think, I think Thomas's questioning of this whole resurrection story here, I mean, it is very logical. But where Thomas ran into trouble is this. It's whenever he allowed his questioning of the resurrection to turn into doubt, and that doubt began to consume him. As a matter of fact, he just simply made an outright hasty decision concerning what he was going to believe about the resurrection. I mean, if you read the text we just read, he said... I'm going to have to see him first, I've got to touch him, I've got to feel him, and I don't care what you say, for right now, I will not believe. He just simply made a decision. It was a decision that he made just right off the top of his head. Now, I don't know how you are, but whenever I make decisions right off the top of my head, whenever I make decisions based off of what I'm feeling I, I can tell you without a doubt, I do not make good decisions. The best thing that I can do, when I, especially when, when it's concerning stuff, and I'm not talking about, hey, where are we going to eat? I know some people, they, I wish they'd make a hasty decision. Like, well, I don't care, what do you want to eat? So anyway, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the kind of decisions you know, that make a difference. You know, the kind of stuff that has a, an impact for your eternity. Don't make hasty decisions in that area of your life. Because whenever you make hasty decisions there, guys, let me tell you something, you're going to get into trouble. Now, have you, ever made, have you ever done that before? Maybe not in big areas of life where you've made a hasty decision, made just a real snap, a real snap judgment, and it was just completely wrong. You thought, and that was not a good move. And you look back and you regret it. Now, there's been times like that in my, in my life. And fortunately, there have been some times when I've, when I've not done that, and I look back and go, oh, thank goodness I didn't make a quick decision. Um, and, and this is just a, just a kind of a, a little bit of an example here. I used to have a Honda Accord that, that it was a stick shift, and I was, um, I was driving home. I was coming home from church, actually. And I was turning in our neighborhood when all of a sudden um, I, could not, I could not shift my car into any gear at all. It just, you know, I was trying to, I had put, popped it into neutral, and I was going to you know, go into second, and it, it would not go into second. And yes, I was using the clutch. So I'm sitting there, and it would not go. And it just, the car just stops in the entrance of our neighborhood. And so I was just glad to get off the road because this is when we lived in Lexington. I was on Highway 1. So I got out of my car. Had my, I had one of my kids in the car with me. And I got out, and I began to push the car, trying to get it out of the entrance. And as I'm pushing the car, one of our neighbors comes in behind me. And apparently, I was not pushing the car fast enough. And so he starts, like, laying on his horn. Okay, so in my mind, I have this haste. Y'all have the gift of making real quick decisions. And so now, fortunately on this day, I did not because I'm a pastor and I'm always thinking i got to be careful because this could be a church member. And so I'm pushing the car, but in my mind, I'm thinking I would like to go back to that guy's car and say, hey, buddy, why don't we swap places and I'll lay on the horn while you push the car because it's so motivating. You know, so anyway, so I'm glad I didn't make a hasty decision like that. But, you know, there are times in our lives when we make hasty decisions. And, and sometimes we can make them, make them about our faith. And I know people who do that. They make the decision right off the bat. They say, I don't, I don't believe in Jesus. And, you know, obviously, they, people have, we have freedom to choose how we're going to believe. They'll say, I don't believe that he rose from the grave. Um, I don't believe that, that he is the son of God. 
I don't believe that anything in Scripture is true. And, and typically, as if I get a chance to talk to people, a lot of times those, those decisions that they made about the Lord, that they come from somewhere. And a lot of times they come from this place. They, they come from hurt, from disappointment. And as if there's a God, then why would he allow something like this to happen? And so the easy thing to do is just say, I don't believe in him. There are, there are others who, 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 who look at, at, at things that go on in, in Scripture. They look at the resurrection. They say, I've never seen anything like that before. So there's no, if I haven't seen it, then there's no way that it can be true. Now, Thomas made a quick decision. He said, I'm not going to believe. That's what he says in our text. I will not believe. It was a quick decision. But I think it's interesting that the Lord did not appear again. He let, he let Thomas sit on this for eight days says he did not appear again for eight days. And so I believe during this time that the Lord is just allowing Thomas the opportunity, the time, to think about the things that Jesus had said in the past, that Jesus said that he would do, and the promises of God. So if we're going to have, if we're gonna have freedom that moves us over our doubt, we have, to, we have to take time. We have to make sure that we're taking our time in, in remembering and thinking about the promises that God gives us before we make a hasty decision. All right, so, so here's the second step that leads to freedom over doubt that I see in our text today. This is the second one, check the evidence. Check, be willing to check the evidence. Now look with me in verse number 27, and I'm speaking of checking the evidence about Jesus and who he is. In verse 27 it says, Then he, Jesus, said to Thomas, Put your finger here and observe my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be an unbeliever, but a believer. Now Thomas checked out the evidence of Jesus in verse number 27. And this is what I love. Jesus appears again and he's standing before the disciples and Thomas is there this time and you'll notice Jesus did not say, Thomas, stand back, don't get too close, don't touch me, just look at me. He didn't do that. He said, Thomas, you come over here and you examine the evidence. If you need to, you put your hands on me to, to, for, for me to show you that I'm real. You touch these these nail prints that are my hands and my feet, you touch my side where the spear went into me so that you can know this is really me. And, and this is what I, what I really enjoy about who our God is. God gives us the opportunity to examine the evidence so that he can show us as we examine the evidence that he can show us that he is truth. Y'all, let me tell you something. God is not afraid of your questions or mine. If you have doubts and you have fears and you wonder about the truth of Scripture, I want you to know something. It's okay. God's, God doesn't cower in fear going, oh my gosh, I hope that it won't really find out the truth. See, God tells us that if you seek him, he says, you will find me. Now you might say, well, if I was Thomas and Jesus appeared before me and he's standing there and says, hey, come and touch me, well, I'd believe too. And I, I get that, but here's the deal. We're not today, you and I are not going to see the physical body of Jesus. We're not going to be able to lay our hands on Jesus, but there's still things that we can examine to find out the truth, to find out who Jesus really is. And I say, well, what, what is, what's some of the evidence that we can examine about Jesus? Well, for one, you can examine the evidence about Jesus himself. The historicity of Jesus. Did you know that, that scholars today, any, the majority of scholars, any scholar that is worth his salt, 
will let you know. They will tell you, even if they don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, they will say that Jesus was a real historical person. I mean, you can look that you can you can look it up and find us. They will tell you that. Uh, that nobody in all of history has been written about more than Jesus. If you are like my age or older, you might have encyclopedias in your house. You know, the books that weigh 900 pounds. Look up, go to J, look up Jesus. There is more information about Jesus than any other person that's ever been written about. Absolutely unbelievable. Well, what other evidence can we look at? You might say, well, that, that sounds good. A lot of people have written about Jesus. Okay, I get that. But how can I, how can I know that the Bible is real? You know, that's trustworthy. Because that's where the information, most of it anyway, comes about Jesus. And that, that's a legitimate question. But again, I want to remind you, God's not afraid of you examining the validity of Scripture because he doesn't have anything to hide. The Bible tells us that our God, he is a God of truth. And as we examine evidence, the only thing that's going to do is going to build your faith. See, well, one of the great things to know about Scripture is our Scripture is something that is rooted in history. Let me share with you some, some important information about the Bible that we've discovered to be true. Now, you might say, well, I'm not, I can't just take your word for it. There's books out there that you can read. Uh, one of the books I've shared with this, with this, uh, this with you before, one of my favorite, is it's called The Case for Christ. It's a great book. There's another one, The Evidence Demands a Verdict. Another book called Know Why You Believe. Now, now you may already know this, but through the years, scribes would write down, they'd make copies of, of Scripture so that people would have it in the future. Over 6,000 ancient copies have been found of the New Testament. Many of those were written within 50 years of the lifetime of Jesus. Now you might say, well, I, that, that doesn't mean anything to me. Okay, it, hopefully it will after I share this with you. If you look at other ancient manuscripts of other works, nothing comes even close to comparing to the Bible. Uh, Aristotle, his famous work called Poetics. Y'all know that one? One of my favorites. I'm just, I've never read it. Anyway, Poetics, very, very famous. And so Aristotle wrote Poetics. There's ancient copies of Poetics. There's, there's only, I believe there's only five of them. The earliest copy they have was a thousand years after the lifetime of Aristotle. And yet nobody says, was Aristotle a real guy? Did Aristotle write this? Nobody, nobody ever questions that. Uh, Caesar's Gallic Wars. There's ten ancient copies of that work. The earliest copy is 900 years after Caesar lived. And yet nobody ever asked the question, was Caesar a real guy? I mean, was there really such a thing as the Gallic Wars? Nobody ever questions that. It's because they, they look at those copies and go, we know that these are things that we can trust in. And then you get to Scripture. Oh, within 50 years of the lifetime of Jesus, 6,000 copies. Five for one, ten for the other that I just told you about. And yet there are questions that abound. Let me tell you something. The evidence doesn't just stop with ancient manuscripts. Did you know archaeology has done nothing but verify what the Bible has to say? Uh, there, there are 25,000 places that are mentioned in Scripture that archaeology has found. Nothing in archaeology has done anything to disprove what Scripture has to say. 
uh, one of my favorite things, when we were in Israel, and we have some people from our church who went to Israel with us, and we were at uh, Caesarea. There's a town called Caesarea, Caesarea Maritime. It's right on the Mediterranean Sea. It's a beautiful area. But it used to be the, cap, the Roman capital of Judea. Now, scholars for years said there's this guy in the Bible named Pontius Pilate. You, know, you all know Pontius Pilate. You know, he's the guy who condemned Jesus to death. He was the governor of Judea during this time. They said there's no evidence for that guy. The Bible speaks of him, but there's no record of him in Roman history. Well, archaeology helped us out a little bit. In the 1960s, as they were excavating that town, Caesarea, which was the capital, it's where Pontius Pilate lived, they excavated and they found a monument that was built to Pontius Pilate. has his name on it. I, I should have brought the picture. I have a picture of it. Uh, it says, Pontius Pilate, Governor. Y'all, archaeology has done nothing but verify what Scripture has to say. Even ancient historians verify Jesus. Josephus, who's one of the most uh, well-known, respected ancient historians, lived just a few years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He wrote about Jesus, and he said, Jesus, who was known as a miracle worker. Unbelievable stuff. Now, now, if you examine the evidence, let me tell you, if you're going to be honest about it and you examine the evidence about Jesus, here's what you're going to come to. That Jesus is real. That Jesus lived. That Jesus is somebody that lived and he died and he rose from the grave. So before you make hasty decisions, let me, let me encourage you to do something. Take your time. You have questions? Okay, to have questions. Your questions don't scare God. He's big, and he's truth. But here's the second thing, the second step that helps us to be able to move in over doubt. And it's this. Once you get the evidence, you respond to the evidence. Respond to the evidence. Now, I want you to uh, do something for me. Look with me in verse number 28. It says, Thomas responded to him, my Lord, my God. Now, I, that is one of my favorite verses. He says, my Lord and my God. Now, Thomas has, he received a nickname. Uh, that I think he kind of, he got shafted on the nickname. Y'all know the nickname of Thomas? Doubting Thomas, exactly right. That guy, and, they tell, and I'm sure all the other disciples were kind of happy about that. You know, Thomas, yeah, you know Thomas, you know Doubting Thomas. They make themselves feel good. Man, when Jesus went to the cross, you know what the other disciples were doing? They were hiding. They, they were hiding. They thought they were going to get killed just like Jesus was. Uh, Thomas, now, I, I, Thomas was, a, here's what I like about Thomas. Thomas is a realist. You know, he's just real pragmatic. Um, as a matter of fact, if you, look at, if you look back, you go back in Scripture, in the book of Matthew, you read about Thomas, and he, Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And the disciples are like, Jesus, don't go to Jerusalem, they'll kill you. Okay, so here's Thomas. Thomas loves Jesus. And Thomas, being the pragmatist that he is, the realist, he says, come on, guys, let's just go to Jerusalem. We'll just die with Jesus. I mean, he's, a, I mean, he's willing to follow him and even die for him. But he gets this nickname, he's known as Doubting Thomas. Now, the guys, here's the, there's nothing wrong with him having questions, but he had to be careful because those doubts can absolutely destroy your faith. Now, Thomas, finally, he, he, he takes his time, he begins to examine the evidence, Jesus stands before him, and then when he sees the evidence, he responds to it. He doesn't look at Jesus and doesn't say, i got to be hallucinating. He doesn't look at Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, come over here. Let me, let me touch you to find out if you're real. What does he do? He just simply says, my Lord and my God. Now, now, why did he do that? Because once he saw the evidence, 
he responded. Once he saw the evidence, he says, my doubts are over. Now, let me tell you something, guys. The Bible is not some made-up fantasy story. And I said, well, it sure seems like it is. Now, let me tell you something. If you begin to investigate, you're going to find out that Scripture is filled with truth. Now, you might say, well, if it's such compelling evidence, why don't more people follow Jesus? If it's such compelling evidence, why don't more people believe that Jesus lived and he died and he rose from the grave? And I think that's a good question to ask. Why don't more people follow Jesus? And I think a way to answer that is think about it like this. Why don't more people eat healthy? You know, we know that if we eat healthy, that it's better for our bodies. Isn't that right? So let me ask you a question. Then why don't more people do it? As I'm saying this, as we have donuts in the back. You know, why, why don't more people eat healthy? Real simple reason. They don't want to. Right? That's real bottom line. It's not like, well, I would eat healthy, but my wife pins me down and just shoves pizza into my face. That's not what happens. You just, you just choose to do it. Why don't more people believe in Jesus? Here it is. They don't want to. That's it. Well, why? Because let me tell you something. If you say there is a Jesus, that means there is a God. And if there is a God, we will be held accountable by God for the way we live. But if I reject Jesus, then there is no God. And then I can live any way that I want to without being held accountable. So the real question for us is, are we willing to be honest? If we really, are, are we willing to be honest enough that we're going to seek? Are we going to be honest enough that, that we're going to look at the evidence? Because let me tell you something, if you look at the evidence and you're going to be intellectually honest, then you need to respond to it. A great example of this is there's a movie that our youth went to see this past week called The Case for Christ. And it's actually it's a book. And uh, the book was written by Lee Strobel. And I, 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 that's one of my favorite books, actually, that I've read on, like, Christian apologetics. It's just a neat book. And his, what happened is he was inspired. And it's not like he set out to write a Christian book. But he's a guy that he was a writer. He actually wrote for the Chicago Tribune. Won a Pulitzer Prize. He's the guy who, uh, for those of you who are, you know, ancient, old people like me, you remember, whenever, you remember the Ford Pintos? Remember what happened? You, you hit the back of a Ford Pinto, and it just blow up. Okay, Lee Strobel's the guy who broke this story. And so he won the Pulitzer Prize for it. His wife was not a believer, neither was he, but she got involved in a Bible study. And then she ended up becoming a Christian. And he was like, well, that's, you know, that's fine, but he thought that was a little weird. And so he thought he would do her a favor. And so what he's going to do is he's going to investigate Christianity, show her the flaws, say, hey, listen, this isn't really something you want to follow after. It's not true. Well, he began to do this investigation, and guess what happened? He, he didn't find holes. He didn't find the flaws. And he ended up, this guy who was a jaded man, a worldly man, once he looked at the evidence, he was honest, honest enough to respond to it, and he got on his knees, and he became a follower of Jesus, and his doubts evaporated. Now, now maybe you're a person who says, you know what, I have, I have some doubts. I have some doubts about Christianity. But I want you to know that you can have freedom over your doubts about, about your faith. It just comes down to, are, are you willing you willing to do it? 
you will not have freedom. See, Romans 10.9 tells us that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says, then you shall be saved. Only a foolish person would look at evidence and then come to a conclusion and then ignore it. That's, that's the thing I love about Thomas. Thomas looked at the evidence and then he made a decision. And so here's the question. What, what decision will you make? You want to have freedom over your doubt? Well, do what Thomas did. Take your time, check the evidence, and then respond to the evidence. The question is, are you ready to do it?